As many of you know, I was on sabbatical this summer, and one of the people I was studying while I was away was the pastor-theologian Eugene Peterson. Uh, Peterson is most well-known for his translation uh, paraphrase of the Bible known as the message. Um, In that work, he takes idiom and, and phrase and word from the Hebrew and Greek language of the Bible and converts it into everyday American English. He does this not by simply taking each word and finding the English equivalent, but by trying to convey the meaning behind the words within the translation. So a lot of people who've come across the message translation of the Bible find it a much more accessible way of reading the Bible than they've known before. Others, however, are critical because this translation doesn't stick as closely to the original languages. The reason Peterson feels comfortable doing this kind of translation work, though, is because of his understanding of literature, in particular, the use of metaphor. So in addition to studying his biography and visiting his home this summer while I was on sabbatical, um, I read a collection of his sermons. It's called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And in one of those sermons, he says, with the stimulus of metaphor, we develop an aptitude for dealing with all the interconnected visibles and invisibles inerrant in reality. Metaphor is our lexical witness to transcendence. Metaphors point to a reality beyond what declarative sentences can describe or define. They seek to point us to a truth which is actually beyond the grasp of language. One of those metaphors that comes up throughout the Bible is rocks. Now, rocks can simply be part of a landscape in some stories, but in other places, God is actually referred to as a rock. You heard that in our psalm reading this morning. So we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at this motif of rocks throughout the Bible to see what did they say about who we are? What do these rock stories have to say about who God is? And how might we find the rocks of our own life to be infused with the very presence of God? So our first story uh, actually has a rock in its physical form. It's a pillow rock. And this pillow rock story comes in the middle of the life of Jacob. And so we need to know something about Jacob before we just dive into our story from today. Uh, Jacob is a twin. He's the younger twin. He's born second, and from the very beginning of his life, he's been trying to thwart the ancient birthright that defined his family. Um, This is the younger brother story that he follows. His his older brother's name is Esau. Esau's real hairy when he's born. He grows up to be a real man's man, the stereotypical masculine image. Um, Esau's a hunter out in the fields. He's the favorite child of their father, Isaac. Jacob, however, Jacob's more of a homebody. He stays in the tent, and he's the favorite of his mother, Rebecca. Now, you'll hear in this story an archetype, Esau and Jacob, older brother, younger brother, that's repeated in a host of cultures and in a host of stories. Uh, this is uh, the god of thunder, Zeus, and his younger brother who rules the underworld, Hades, in Greek mythology. Uh, This is Claudius, the younger brother of the king of Denmark, who murders his older brother and marries his wife in Hamlet. And for those of you perhaps who aren't 
Shakespeare buffs. Um, Disney has adapted this for you by giving you the same story, but with lions, with Mufasa, the righteous older brother, and Scar, the conniving usurper of the throne. For those of you who are more contemporary, you could think about Thor as the older good brother and Loki as the conniving younger brother in the Marvel comic series. Or, maybe this one's a reach, for TV buffs, if you watch the AMC show Better Call Saul, you've got the perfect son in Charles McGill and then the trickster shyster of his younger brother, Jimmy. And in the story of Jacob and Esau, the younger brother Jacob does exactly what all these other younger brothers do in this archetypal story. He uses tricks, he uses his cunning to get ahead, to get the best, the better of his older brother. The first thing he does in our story is Jacob plays to the brutish appetite of Esau. He's making a delicious pot of stew. Esau comes home from a multi-day hunt. He, like most um, traditionally driven masculine men, is driven by his stomach. And so he wants something to eat. And Jacob knows he can take advantage of that. And so he says, I'll give you some of this soup I've made if you give me your birthright. And he tricks him out of his birthright. Then a few chapters later, you have Jacob... Bothering, uh, borrowing his brother's wardrobe and putting some, some hair on his arms and he sneaks into their old blind father Isaac and he tricks Isaac and he steals the blessing that was given from God to their grandfather Abraham and was supposed to go to Esau. Jacob steals it. Now when Esau comes home and finds out that Jacob has stolen the blessing, he vows that he's going to kill him. And so Jacob goes to his mother, and Rebecca says, you've got to flee, you've got to leave. She sends him away through the wilderness to the land of her brother Laban. And that's where we meet Jacob today. He has fled his homeland of Haran. He is out in the wilderness on his way to Laban's house. He's by himself. He's looking over his shoulder to see if Esau is in pursuit. He has on him only what he can carry in his own hands. The day is coming to an end. The temperature in the desert plummets. The sky is lit only by the stars. Jacob's ears are tuned to the sounds of what could be predators around him. Our Bible passage says that he came to a certain place, which is kind of a funny phrase. It basically means he just stopped walking. He settles for the night. He finds a rock for a pillow. He lays his head down and he goes to sleep. Now that seems like a fairly inconsequential moment. Except, in order for a person to go to sleep, they have to be willing to relinquish control. And Jacob has been looking out for himself his whole life. He doesn't give up control. But none of us can sleep unless we're willing to give up control. Sleep itself is an act of faith trusting our bodies to continue to do those involuntary movements of breathing and our heart to keep beating. To sleep is to trust that we won't be attacked by a predator or destroyed by some kind of a storm. You can't be in control and be asleep at the same time. That's important when we think about Jacob. He's this hustler, He's this busy one, this loner, the one who has so dedicated himself to himself that there's never even been space in his waking mind to consider a God who would be part of his existence. But he has to relinquish his control in order to sleep. 
And that is when God gets to him. The bringing together of heaven and earth. Jacob hears the voice of God, and that voice declares over Jacob that he will inherit the blessing first given to his grandfather Abraham and then passed on to his father Isaac. The blessing he stole from his older brother Esau. God now says, I am giving you this blessing as a gift. Even though Jacob hasn't said that he's even sorry for stealing it in the first place, Jacob's life does not warrant the reception of this blessing. This is not who Jacob is, yet that's what God declares in the dream. The next thing God gives Jacob is a charge. The voice of God says that all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. Well, that's not Jacob either. Jacob's life has been to look out for number one. He's used every trick in the book in order to get ahead. He makes sure that he always has a way out of the web of lies that he has weaved. Jacob doesn't even care about his own immediate family, much less all the families of the world. And then lastly, God's voice says, Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. But Jacob is a loner. He's had to make a life for himself without much help from anyone else. Jacob knows that he's untrustworthy, and he assumes that that's the way everybody else is too. The dream gives Jacob a blessing he does not deserve. It charges him with a mission that he's shown no aptitude to carry out. And it gives him a promise that God will be with him when he's tried to live his whole life by himself and for himself. So Jacob wakes up with his head on that rock as the early gray dawn light shines a crick in his neck. And he has a choice before him. One choice is to dismiss the dream. Maybe it was something that he ate uh, maybe it was just some psychological phenomenon, a happenstance occurrence. He could keep going on, looking out for number one, his own interest, his own purpose to define his life the way he always has. Or, this night on the pillow rock could be his very moment of transformation. He can choose to trust the dream as more firm than even that rock that lies beneath his head. He has inherited a blessing, been charged with a mission, and been given a promise that he does not journey on his own. This is the place of faith. We see the evidence around us and the evidence of our own lives that tells us one thing, about who we are and what the world is like around us. But after sleeping on the rock, we're given a vision of something entirely different that can't be grasped but only pointed to, a vision of what truly is that can be lived toward, that can be lived in, despite the evidence to the contrary. 
I had a conversation recently with someone who is living in one of these critical decision places. They're becoming more and more aware of the evidence of life around us that can easily lead us to conclude there is no God, no holy purpose, no cosmic story of which we are a part. They're asking questions about how we make decisions, how justice is administered. How does a person decide on a, a career path, a spouse, whether or not to have children? Are all of our morals just given to us from our parents? Is everything just culturally conditioned? Just as an aside, these are questions that are also in the Bible. Um, Ecclesiastes, Job, Jeremiah, the Psalms. This person said, I want to believe in a God who is good and who is for me. But how can I believe that God is for me when? And the list can be endless. The senseless suffering, the injustice, the evil, the violence. It happens in our personal lives, it happens in our communities, it happens around the globe. And I so wanted in that conversation to have some quip, some line, some verse from Scripture that could calm that doubt, that could just wrap it up neatly in a box and prove the vision, prove the dream, make it digestible, show it's trustworthy. I felt, I felt like I was in a life raft, and this person had been treading water for a long time. Their muscles were cramping. They were losing their breath, and I kept plunging my hand into the water, offering it to them, and they would grab it, and they would just slip off. We just couldn't get each other. And I wonder if what I did say actually did more harm than it did good. Because the reality is, nobody can make the decision between the evidence and the dream, except the person who wakes up in the morning with their head on that rock. late writer Frederick Beekner reminds us, faith is better understood as a verb than as a noun, as a process than as a possession. It is on again, off again, rather than once and for all. Faith is not being sure where you're going, but going anyway, a journey without maps. Jacob makes his choice. He takes that rock he slept on, he anoints it with oil, he builds an altar to God, he names it Bethel, a holy place. Jacob will receive the blessing, he will accept the charge to bless all peoples, he will live this promise that he does not walk the path alone. And yet, even though he makes the choice to live for the dream, 
Jacob immediately says, now if God is with me and will protect me on this trip, he still wants some evidence, some, some assurance that what God says is true will actually happen. Jacob, the one whose name is changed later to Israel, the namesake of the covenant community, Jacob lives his entire life in this mixture of faith and uncertainty. And so can we. I can't say anything here this morning that will convince you or eliminate all doubt within you of this God we claim to follow. Some days that dream will shine ahead of us as the greatest revelation of our lives, and then other days the clouds will swirl in, the sky become dark, and we will mope along in dread and in despair. But the assurance we hear in this gathering every week is that no matter what if we carry in our faith with God, there is no if in the declaration God makes over us. The blessing, the mission, and the promise remain both in the days when we embrace them and in the days when they are far from our lives. So we keep showing up. We keep listening. We take the rock that is before us. And we bless it as pointing us to a reality beyond words. So may we, may we all, find ourselves in Bethel. Amen.